What happens when you take a redneck fishing guide and pair him up with a master beekeeper? Well, we're about to find out. Join our host, Ken Milam and John Swan, as they help you brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. This is The Hive Jive. This episode is brought to you by a landlocked naval officer who needed a new hobby outside of drinking snobby IPAs. Thank you, Mark. All right. Good Monday morning to you, sir. How are you doing today, I'm doing Ken? good. And yourself? I'm doing pretty good. Um, let's uh, let's start right off here, get this out of the way, go through and give a shout out to our newest patron members on Patreon. Uh, we have, as of last week, we want to give a shout out and a thank you to Larry C., Jerry W., Amy P., Elton A., Daniel R., and uh, on Elton's, I'm not, ex- I haven't entirely decided if that's a first name and a last name or the husband's name and the wife's name. So I'm not entirely sure on that. So, because um, it could go either way and they're both in the photo. So that's why I was like, hmm. But uh, anyway, thank you so much to all of you for supporting us and joining us out there on Patreon. Uh, that is greatly appreciated. And uh, we, uh, we got some rain, Ken. We didn't just get some rain. We got some rain. Yeah, we did. Last Monday, here in Austin, I'm not sure about out there for you guys in the Hill Country, but here in Austin, last Monday, we ended up with three and a quarter inches, and then last night, we ended up getting another three and a half inches in the span of about two hours. No, we didn't get nothing like that. We got got good rain. We got that first rain, the one that y'all had three inches, the first three inches, we got about a half inch out of it. Nice. But it was enough to so get the, the brush going again. Yeah. So the, the positive on that is going to be that now that we've gotten some rain, if we give it a couple of days, we're going to have an abundance of nectar, fingers crossed, and hopefully even more wildflowers that show up because the the wildflowers at the moment are they're out there. I was going to mention this on our other episode a week or two ago, and I forgot, but you know, there's there are flowers there, but they look so sad. And like instead of the roadways being just littered in all these beautiful colors and green, the roadways are brown with some flowers interdispersed. And so hopefully this will go through and actually change that and make it a little bit more hopefully bountiful for us this year. Because so far this spring's been pretty rough on us, but. One of the things that you had actually mentioned uh, just before we got on the air, too, is that there's not going to be any nectar for anybody today. <laughs> no, not <laughs> like, today. It's all washed yeah. out. Yeah, it doesn't It doesn't take a lot of rain to super dilute and or wash out the nectar from a flower. Now, it depends on the type of flower. If it's one of them that is just open, um, then it's very easy to do that. But if it's one of the ones that are more for, like, butterflies and hummingbirds that actually curve downward – those, a lot of times, the rain won't necessarily affect because the nectar is back up inside there, and the flower itself acts kind of like an umbrella for the plant. But, yeah, it's it's absolutely, like, it's great that we got rain. We desperately needed it. But at the same time, there's not going to be any nectar available today. Uh, maybe a little bit tomorrow we'll start kind of eking in there a little bit. And then uh, the rest of the week, if we don't get any more rain, it should be really, really good. And hopefully for a few weeks after... And then if we can have a, one more really good rainstorm after a few weeks, that should kind of help ease us all the way in through June. You know, we want it to be spread out 
at once a week at the most, maybe every other week. And uh, we still have a chance of actually having a decent nectar flow for sure. Now, I sent you some pictures, and it's this is early. And there's this rain, like you were saying, me and John was talking about some stuff. But I sent pictures of mesquite blooming. And this is early for mesquite to bloom in Texas. Well, so mesquite is a, it's a very interesting tree, and it, it can be kind of fickle in a way. But what mesquite wants is it wants a lot of rain initially, and then it wants a long, dry period, preferably hot, and that will trigger it to bloom. And that's so. Yeah, and you guys did have a long stretch of dry up there, so your mesquites are going in and kicking in and starting to bloom. Now, for us down here, our mesquites aren't even thinking about it. And I remember last year, your mesquites bloomed a good two to three weeks before mine did out in the prairie land. So, you know, you guys are a little bit ahead of us on that, and that may just be that wet-dry combination. But now the, the fickle part of the mesquite as well, though, is that yours were starting to bloom and then we just got two rainstorms back to back, they're going to stop. They will actually drop those blooms and they will quit. <laughs> that's that's where that fickle part of that comes in for sure. Now, also, I noticed yesterday, we, me and Max, we worked bees yesterday. I noticed some spotted horse mint. It's the first horse mint that we've seen around us. And you remember how much we had last year? Oh, yeah, yeah. Tons of it out there. Just now, now starting to see a little bloom on horse mint. I did see, I was doing consultations um, technically yesterday, and I did see at uh, at one of the client's houses there was some horse mint, and she was talking about how she was a little disappointed because there was a whole patch that she had left and she didn't mow it, and she said last year that whole thing was just horse mint. And this year there was like two tiny little sprigs of it there and that was it. But I did tell her, you know, that it could change because horsemint is one of those that for us, that should be our late summer or our, our midsummer bloom. Usually, you know, we we get the the blue bonnets early off first in the year. That brings us tons of pollen in. And then you see the Indian paintbrush start to come up. Now, I've I've been told actually that the bees don't get anything from the paintbrush, which kind of shocked me. But you see those come up, and that's a good sign. Then we start getting some uh, various yellow flowers here and there of, of several different species. Then you start moving in to where your Indian blanket starts to come out, and then also a lot of your thistle starts to come out. And that is your prime nectar source is the Indian blanket. Or sorry, yeah, the Indian blanket. That's our prime nectar source, and that's usually what kind of carries us all the way through May and June. And then you get the thistle mixed in there, and then towards June, the horse mint starts going, and the horse mint ends up being the big source in June and sometimes carries over into July, depending on how well it does. So there were places, though, where I saw horse mint this year. Well, we saw we saw the um, top hat and Indian blanket in February, which was way off. And we've seen horse mint, you know, in March and April in places, just little ones here and there. But so everything got really thrown off this year by the seasons. And it definitely didn't do any favors for us in Central Texas for the beehives, for sure. Um, for other places up north, I mean, they're still struggling to get out of winter. You know, they're still having days where it's down 35, 45 degrees and and, you know, they're they're waiting for days where it's warm enough for the bees to get out and fly. So this year has been a very, very bizarre year 
And uh, it, it just, you know, fingers crossed that it levels out for everybody in time that we can still salvage something out of it, have our colonies grow and maybe get a little bit of honey out of them this year. I was in Lano picking up some barbecue and one of the kid, one of the guys there, well, he's the owner of Inman's. He came out and talk, got talking to me. He says, Ken, I know you're getting into bee business. And I told him about the hive jive. I says, you need to be listening to it. He says, I want to get into it. And that's why I told him to catch the hive jive. He started asking me about the plastic hives that are coming out, the plastic supers. Have you had any dealings with those? I haven't. I have uh, I have examined them and looked at them because there there's a couple of people that um, are actually from overseas that live here now and they've kind of brought them with them and they they have them when we go and we do like some of our our big conventions and trade shows and things like that they'll be there and so you can kind of go through and, and take a look at them and everything um, overseas they use those a lot. And they don't really seem to have too much issue with them. So I haven't ever used one here in Central Texas where it gets as hot as it does. So I don't really know how well it's going to do overall. But um, in theory, if it worked kind of like um, like one of our ice chests or coolers or something where that the insulation in the walls is designed to where it's going to keep the internal temperature either hot or cold, depending on what's needed, then in theory it should do just as fine in the summer as it does in the winter for the bees being able to regulate and maintain their temperatures. Um, the big thing that I would think would be a problem would be, is it going to warp in the heat? Because, you know, they make the frames that are solid plastic all the way around. It's a plastic frame with a plastic foundation. Like the whole thing is one molded piece of plastic, um, kind of like the green drone comb frame. They make regular frames like that as well that are just solid plastic and they're black or white or yellow and then the drone one is green. Um, those will warp. They will actually bend and, and warp. And here in Central Texas for us, you know, it, it can get over 110 degrees in the summertime and it's usually over 100 for a very long stretch. Like I, I always joke and it's, it's one of them funny because it's true <laughs> but sad all at the same time. Um, it's usually 40 days plus in a row where it's over 100 degrees for us in July and August. And those frames will actually bend. And it's usually not necessarily the top. The top will stay kind of in a straight line. But as it goes down, it starts to bow in or twist in kind of a weird fashion. And so I wonder what those plastic hives would do out here for us in that heat if they would, you know, maybe your entrance reducer gets warped and bent or, or something, you know, like I'm not necessarily sure on that. Um, but it, I mean, it could be worth something that's, it's definitely worth a try. You never know till we get one and see, it's kind of like you and your scrats, which finally arrived. We got three colonies of, well, we've got three colonies of bees requeened with scrats. We got them and we even did, uh, a experiment we got one and a top bar, uh, the top bar that the queen died in or we lost the queen. And so we let them raise a queen, and she was a shotgunner. I mean, she it looked like you shot that that uh, comb with a shotgun the way she was laying brew or laying. So she came out and yesterday, and we put a scrat in there. And now we have a nuke with scrats with a scrats queen. 
Uh, and we have a that that big cutout we did out of that tree. It was a big bunch of bees. And John says, that wasn't that big of a hive. Well, the, the bulldozer operator, he said, there's 50,000, 60,000 bees in there. And John says, well, how many pounds was of bees was in that box? Oh, six or seven pounds. So, what is that, 20,000, 25,000 bees? Uh, yeah, I mean, roughly around 30,000 total, I would think. Um, so, if a, if a package, I mean, if you, if you roll it up, if you estimate it upwards, you could say that a, a package of bees, which is three pounds of bees, is roughly uh, 10,000 bees. So, if you had six pounds, it's only going to be 20,000 bees. If it was a little bit over that, then it's about 25. So that's really about the average size of a colony. Now, come the end of June, a colony with enough space and enough drawn comb can reach 60,000 bees. And, you know, that it's just that's just kind of how it is. But sometimes they are definitely restricted by the container or cavity that they're in. They can only hold a certain amount before they get that I'm too congested and crowded feeling and they want to divide and split and swarm. Um, and that's actually, that, that right there is also another great transition on a topic we wanted to talk about today, but swarming is, I mean, that's, it's something that happens every single year and it is the bees natural instinctive drive to want to do a reproductive split and to, you know, go out there and make a new entity, a new colony. And it's going to happen. Um, we've had a lot of listeners that had it happen to them this year, especially a lot of our second and third year listeners. Um, second and third year is in like been keeping bees for two and three years. We haven't been on the air quite that long just yet. Um, but they, they've had a lot of these issues where they've had the, the colonies go through and swarm and in some cases swarm multiple times. And the way that that can work is, your colony runs out of space. And to them, again, just to recap for everybody, I know we've said this before, but space is drawn, empty comb. It's not a void of space. So if they're in a top bar, for instance, and they've got six bars of comb, but then they've still got three and a half foot of open cavity that they could build in, that three and a half foot doesn't exist to them. Their world revolves around those six comb, and that's it. So when those six comb get full and they can't build comb or they're not building comb fast enough to continue making them feel like they have space, well, then they're going to be switched over into that urge to swarm. And it's it's a combination of how much food do we have? Do we have capped food stores? Do we have a lot of bees? And is there anywhere else for the queen to lay? And if the combinations of those things get right, then they go through and they're like, okay, well, we, we've got a lot of bees. If the foragers all come back, so if we have days where it rains all day like it did last Monday, um, the foragers come back and it feels really cramped and crowded in there and they don't leave for the day. So then they feel really congested and that will kind of kick into that swarm drive as well. So they go through, they, they have the queen start laying in the queen cups. Um, just a side note there, bees do not move eggs period, the end. They will not take an egg from one cell and put it in another cell. That never happens. Um, the queen physically lays inside those swarm cells. And so she lays in the swarm cells. They start going through and prepping. They draw them out. When they get right about to the point of being capped, anywhere from the 10th day when they cap it to a day or two before they're actually going to emerge is when the swarm usually initiates and leaves. 
Sometimes, though, if they've been cramped up for several days due to inclement weather, they may not wait for the cells to be capped. They may go ahead and split and swarm and leave anyway. So if you do go through your colony and you find swarm cells, do not remove those swarm cells until you have done a full inspection of your colony and make sure that the queen is actually there. Um, Side note tangent here. I had a friend of mine who is also a consultation client, and she is a, a vicariously through another client, former client, um, because they're neighbors and they both got into beekeeping together. The one neighbor does not like to listen. Um, I will not mentor her any longer because every time you go out there and you do an education thing, she doesn't pay any attention to it or it goes right out the window and she's polar extreme opposites. But she started with seven colonies right off the bat, one of every hive style you could imagine. And the only two colonies that survived the winter were two of them that I had sold her. The rest of them were gone. One of them was a top bar. So the next year she goes and she gets several more packages of nukes and puts them in there and they all die. And my top bar ended up being the only thing that survived the winter. It was a different breed of stock. But also, the neighbor was also having me come out and do consultations with her. And so I would check in on that top bar every now and then. But anyhow, long story short, the other day, she was outside and she was monitoring, quote unquote, her colony. And she decided she was going to do a training video on what a beekeeper does or professional beekeeper does. And she got the top bar so mad that it stung The neighbors across the street, which are easily, oh man, like if I'm horrible at distance, but I would say the the house across the street is easily 50 yards away, if not more. And then they stung the neighbors over there. They stung the mailman. They stung people down the street that were unloading a car off of a trailer. Um, And all of it was because of her management techniques and styles. I've been out there numerous times for the past three years, and those bees don't even ever follow me to the next colony, let alone get so mad that they sting everybody everywhere else. And every time she manages them, she complains that they're always constantly stinging her. She's also been out there in a skirt with flip-flops on before and just a veil over the top of her head and got stung horribly on her legs and her feet. And, you know, just like all these other things. So it's a a lot of it is bad habits. Um, But... In this instance, she then got frustrated, decided that she was going to go look at her neighbor's hive, which technically she had no business being inside of, opens it up, finds a queen cell towards the upper part of a frame, crushes it, removes it, closes the hive back up, and then tells her neighbor, her friend, that, oh, there was some queen cells in there, but I cut them out of there and then went on. And so... You know, the friend then calls me and says, hey, so this thing just happened. We now have the fire department out here because all the neighbors have called in for emergency services because of this other issue. And she was telling me that she went through my colony and she found a queen cell and she cut it out of there. And she said, was that a good idea? And I said, well, did she do a full inspection and look for the queen? And she said, hell no. She just saw it and cut it out and put it back together. She didn't go find the queen. She didn't look for the queen. And I said, well, the sad reality of this is, depending on why they were making that queen cell, right, it doesn't matter if it was a swarm cell, 
if it was a supersedure cell, if it was an emergency cell, if they were making it and the queen is already gone, that means there are no eggs or larvae in that colony that are going to be at the right age to turn into a new queen. So by immediately cutting out queen cells before you actually verify is your queen still there or not, you potentially could be dooming that colony to death. They're then going to spiral around. They have no queen. As the larvae age out and start to emerge from the cappings, they lose a lot of that pheromone from the larvae, and then they start going laying worker. And then it's irreversible in most cases, and you're done. You've lost your colony. And, you know, this was because somebody who has plenty of their own hives took it upon themselves to go over and mess with someone else's hive that they did not need to be in, nor did they ask if they could. And, you know, it's even if it's not a situation like that for all of us out there, we can go through and we can have instances. Sorry. (laughs) We can have instances where we go through and we open up our hive and we see queen cells and we panic and we're like, no, 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 I don't want them to swarm. And you immediately just start removing queen cells. But that's the opposite of what you should do. You see the queen cells, take note of it, pay attention to every frame, comb or bar that has queen cells on it and go through that colony very slowly and meticulously and look for your queen. If you find your queen, then you can decide what to do. If you don't find your queen, it's a whole different scenario on what you should do. You know, so you you need to have all the information. Don't just have a knee-jerk reaction and go through and do that. But, uh, but yeah, so anyhow, on to the swarming thing. It is a natural occurrence. It does happen. It is not necessarily a bad thing because ultimately, if your colony swarms, say they just swarm once every year, if your colony swarms and you don't manage to catch it, prevent it, or capture the swarm itself, you did lose a the original queen, which you may have loved the genetics of, and you did lose a big chunk of your colony. But there's still all that capped brood in there, which is going to emerge. And as we've discussed, if you're doing like a deep Langstroth, if you've got two deep frames of solid capped brood, you're looking at 18,000 bees right there. So your population's going to jump back up drastically fast. So it's not the end of the world. You can still get a honey harvest. It may be a little bit diminished, but you can still get a honey harvest from that. And, you know, you can go through and, and still have a successful year. Whereas if you split that colony, then you're not probably going to get a honey harvest because the bees have to transfer all of the energy that would have become honey into becoming wax. And, you know, there's that adage, it's anywhere from eight to 10 pounds of honey equals one pound of wax. So it's a huge resource drain on the bees to do that. So, I mean, it just kind of depends. But don't be hard on yourself. If you did go through and you did find that your colony is trying to swarm, you know, try to do what you can. But if you miss it, that's okay. It happens. Um, The other thing is after swarms. And an after swarm is when the initial bunch of the bees, they go with the mother queen and they fly off and they go ball up and then they search for a new colony. Two or three days later the first virgin queen emerges, but there's still so many bees. Like, even though that huge chunk left with the first queen, there's still a ton of foragers that were out, and they come back, and the colony still had a ton of nurse bees, and they still feel like they're cramped, and there's still no open space for them to put food and put bees and all this other stuff. So they will do what then is called an after swarm or a virgin swarm. 
And those swarms are usually much smaller, but sometimes they can issue two or three of those from a colony as well. And it's all of the virgins as they hatch and leave. Now, the only downside with this is if they just do one or two, as long as there's still a virgin queen left over to emerge or has emerged and they've got her like sequestered in the back of the colony, then they're fine. But there can be some instances where they get in this repetitive repetitive cycle of going through and they will literally swarm themselves to death because they swarm with the virgin, then they swarm with the virgin, then they swarm with the virgin, and then suddenly there's no virgins left. So there's nobody in the colony to then go through, mate, and start laying eggs. And you wind up right back at a queenless situation where they will eventually end up being laying worker. So that can happen. Um, if it does happen, there's usually very, very, very few bees left in there, or they'll all abscond. Um, let's see. What other horror stories can we tell? <laughs> uh, just you know, just what you said, one of my listeners called in this morning on my regular radio show on the Great Outdoors, and that's what he was telling us about. He says, Ken, I've got a huge uh, oak tree right beside the house, and he said there's a knot hole up quite a ways up in it and that's full of bees and he said they swarm twice so far this spring and i was thinking about exactly what you just said the first swarm was with the with the with the old queen the second swarm was with a virgin queen probably yeah it would just it would depend on the timing is the only thing really if it happened Within a week of the, the first swarm, then yes, it was with a virgin queen. If it happened a month later, then no. She was she'd already gone out and had been fully mated, and they recouped their population so quickly they felt like they needed to swarm again. And in a tree cavity, you know, you guys split open that one tree. So you see now you have the this visual representation of what the inner workings of a tree cavity can be and how the bees have to kind of conform to it. So you can see where they could potentially run out of space or get cramped or feel like they're cramped way quicker than if they're in a, you know, a 10 frame square box kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I know when we opened that up, there was comb in there that was 10 and 12 feet long. Uh, but yeah, uh, I could see that because the, the inside diameter, you know, there was only be three combs that would be that long and yeah, but they, there was quite a few bees in there, but I can see that. And uh, it's uh, it was something to open up a actual tree and see that uh, how they do it. And by the way, that comb gets nasty. <laughs> At least we can take it out. They can't. Or I guess they let let the hive be or let the wax moss come in and clean it. I know that's what Les was talking about one time. Yeah, they. Uh... They will abandon certain combs after they get old and nasty and, and let the wax moths clean them up and they'll move on to fresher comb and then eventually cycle back to that other area. But yeah, your your tree was um, kind of a perfect scenario for the bees because it was the cavity literally went from like the top to the bottom kind of thing. So they had plenty of space. And that's one of the things for the bees is they're looking for a minimum of 10 gallon volume and it doesn't matter the shape of it. So for them, it could be a circumference that's maybe 10 inches around, but yet it's 10 foot tall. And there may only be one or two little comb that fit in there that are only like six inches wide, 
But when it's six inches wide by 10 foot tall, they still absolutely get their 10 gallon volume minimum, if not way more, and they can make it work. But some cavities are just a tiny little bit bigger than a five frame nuke. You know, they're, they're just a hollow that goes in and it's just a nice little space, only a couple feet up or down, you know, and, and again, about a 10, 10 inch circumference or diameter. And, uh, that's all they have. So that colony is going to swarm way more often or in urban environments, lots of people put up bat houses, which are not, sorry, not bat houses. They do put up those as well, but those aren't the same. Um, owl boxes, which then turn into squirrel houses, which then turn into bee houses. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And those are, those are, again, that's kind of a little bit, it's right about the, the five frame nuke size, um, in a Langstroth. And they will move into it and they'll build their comb, but they're going to swarm way more frequently than a full 10 frame box or, you know, a deep and a medium and things like that, because they just don't have the space to have the resources in the drawn comb. So they have to do that reproductive split more often. You know, one of those uh, rescues that uh, the lady uh, gave to us, they gave us a 10-frame, and you came out and requeened them, by the way. They gave us a 10-frame, and they gave us a nuke, a five-frame nuke. And that that five-frame nuke had had bees in it for four or five years when they told us. And they said, oh, they're mean. You can't get around those bees. And they wasn't that mean once you got it. No, they weren't. Mm Mm-mm. And you requeen them to Corniolans. And by the way, that hive right now, we will split it next year. It is so full of bees. It's crazy how full of bees it is. We're going to put another medium on it as soon as I get back to the house. Now, I'm going to pick on you here for a minute because we we had this conversation many times last year when you were talking about this spring. You cannot ever base – what you think you're going to do, even in the fall, let alone next year, on what a colony is today. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, they may be big and bad today, but who knows? They may not even survive the winter. And if they do, they may come out of the, the winter weaker than all your other colonies and have a fraction of the bees. So just because they're rocking and rolling today does not guarantee you you can split that colony at a future date unless you're splitting it today. Now, on that note, I'm going to ask you something. Okay, on the two 10 frames that I bought last year, you know, we split one of them, and we left the other one alone. Well, the one that we did not split is going crazy. The one we split has lots of bees in it, but it's not doing what the the, the hive, the colonies that we didn't split did. Now, let me ask, I'll ask you on this. The one that we didn't split has a solid bottom board. The one that we did split has a screen bottom board. Now, could it be because of the screen bottom board and we split it, it's not doing as well as the other one? R, D, all of the above. Uh, Probably a combination of the above. Right off the bat, any colony that you split has to then divert all their resources to making new comb. Mm-hmm. And I know that you did cheat. You know, we gave them drawn comb initially, but then their next box of stuff was alternated. Whereas the colony you did not split already had a minimum of two boxes of drawn comb, if not three. So 
they they have a jump start because they don't have to use those resources. They can focus on, you know, brood production and, and actually storing food. So that right there is going to play a big factor into it. Um, the colony that is the split took the mother queen, the original queen, with it. A older queen, at that point, she's now working on her second year. So she's going to be a little bit older, which means the egg production may decrease a little bit or the, you know, the rate that she lays may decrease a little bit. Um, whereas the bigger colony that we took her from, that colony has a brand new queen that is going to be very virulent and, you know, lay tons of eggs. So it, it, there's, there's lots of factors in there. Whether or not they have a screened bottom or not, at this point in time in the year, I don't think is as big of a deal. Because um, we split them after we had some of the really dramatic ups and downs on temperatures and stuff. So, uh, But yeah, so I, I don't think that that has as much to do with it. Um, my, my very, very first year of beekeeping, when I had my two Langstroth colonies, they both came from the same breeder. They were both supposed to be the same stock of bees. And they were both in uh, 10-frame Langstroth deeps with a screened bottom and one colony in, it was not a very long time period, maybe a month and a half maximum, Mm -hmm. drew out a total of 19 frames of comb. The other colony drew out a total of seven, which basically barely filled up their first box because they started as nukes and we put five frames in there. So they drew out the other five and then two more. Whereas the other one drew out their other five and entire box and a little bit in a third box. And yet they were supposedly the same. They had the same setups. They were in the same locale. Both had screen bottoms. So, you know, sometimes it's genetics. Sometimes it is, you know, the, the, any number of variables. That's why if you're ever trying to do any type of experiment in beekeeping, you have to do it almost by the scientific method. And one of the things that you had talked about initially was you wanted to test, um, you wanted to take some of the hives out to Mason and you wanted to leave, mm-hmm. you know, like we'll, we'll say five of them with screen bottoms and five of them with solid bottoms and see which ones did better. And if that's all you do, then you can probably get a pretty good idea by going through and doing like the law of averages on each side and, and kind of tabulating it all up. But if you do that and then you're like, oh, but I also I want these six to be scrats and I want those six to be Italians. Well, now you've screwed it all up <laughs> because you've got two separate variables and you won't ever be able to tell which variable actually attributed to the success or failure of that colony. So you've got to just do one little change at a time and then evaluate it and see how it's going to work. But you always still have to have a test subject that is just identical minus that one variable. Now, on that note, you know, we put our first two packages in. You you came out and helped us put them in, showed us how to put those packages in. Those two packages, uh, we found out that razor has either Italians or Carniolans. And uh, now... The bees are going crazy. We had we put a a we had to put a medium on top of one. Well, in fact, we have put a medium on both of them now. We put another medium yesterday on top of that one of those packages. Uh, we put a medium on top of one of them. Oh shoot, that was two or three weeks ago. But they have they are the prettiest 
golden bees that you've ever seen coming out of those both those uh, those hives, those colonies. So if they're the bees themselves are gold, not the queen. Just the uh, I don't even know what the queen's color is, but they're coming out just the prettiest gold. Well, Max, I don't remember. I, I don't look at it like that. Max Max does all that. But the bees are just the prettiest gold. Are those Italians? And that would be my, if I had to base it on just a color, if, if the majority of the worker bees are just a solid gold and they don't have any black to them, then yeah, they probably are more more Italian than, than other things, probably. And as hard as that, as, as crazy as they're blowing up, I know that's what you said, that a lot of your commercial guys want Italians because of that reason. The- well, but that's that's different. We're we're already past the the time frame that that applies. So that is talking about specifically like December, January, February. The Italians were will brood up faster earlier in the year, whereas a Russian or a Carniolan will brood up slower earlier in the year and wait until there's actually readily nectar available out there for them. Once you pass like spring, every colony is the same. So your your Russians and Italians are going to be uh, brooding up and making just as many bees as your Italians are right now at this time of the year. It's only about late fall, early winter, late winter, early spring. Your Russians and Italian or your sorry, your Russians and Carniolans will raise brood later into the fall in a little bit of winter, and they do better at managing the resources better over winter. Part of that is because they don't ramp up brood production too soon, whereas your Italians will shut down production earlier in the year in the fall and not raise as many bees into the late fall and early winter. But they also start their brood production anytime there's a warm day out there, regardless if there's food available or not, and then they will eat themselves out of house and home. So it's all about just that transitional period. In the peak of the nectar flow, all colonies are equal. They will all raise a ton of bees, and they will all max out around 60,000 if they have the space. Like, that. that's 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 that. <laughs> you know, earlier you said we put in some scrats, which we have. Now Max is, he does too much reading and looking at stuff. Has some kind of a hygienic bee that he yeah, has? Yeah, varroa-sensitive hygienic. Yeah. He's, he says, Dad, we're going to order some of those queens. And I'm sitting there. We're going to have carniolans. We've got whatever. These are Italians, possibly. we got Russians. we got scrats. And we're going to have, what did you call it? It's a VSH, varroa-sensitive hygienic. Yep. We're going to have some of those, too, it looks like. So <laughs> it, it's getting interesting. That's all I can say. And then that's kind of how beekeeping is. It's it it's uh, it always keeps you on your toes. There's always something new, something different, you know, something that makes you scratch your head. I've said it before. It doesn't matter if it's your first year or if it's your thirtieth year. There's always something every day that you can learn from the bees. They are truly a marvelous wonder of nature. Now this varora, what? Well, anyway, this bee is it going to be uh, combat? Is it going to be better towards the new varora mite that's coming out okay you can't call it that that's not its name you're going to confuse people okay it's not a new varroa mite 
It is a different type of mite called tropal alaps. What's it called? Yeah. Tropal alaps. Okay. That's its name. <laughs> it's supposed to be a bad varroa mite. It's not a varroa mite. <laughs> it is a mite, but it is not varroa destructor, nor is it varroa anything. It is tropal alaps is what it's called. Um, I don't know because probably not because that bee has never encountered that specific mite. So we can't say that it's going to be good to defend against it because it's it's not great at defending against the regular mite. It's just better than some of the other stocks. They've taken, like Russians are really good at being hygienic. Mm -hmm. So they took the Russian breed from, uh, like the, the certified Russian breed from the uh, Bee Lab in Baton Rouge, mm -hmm. and they crossed it with a couple of other bees that they also had some genetic traits of good hygienic behavior mm -hmm. and came up with this varroa-sensitive hygienic bee that has been bred to have more cleanliness, more uh, cleaning of each other, more chewing or biting of the mites, things like that. But at the same time, those bees are not going to be able to keep all mites out of the colony. They're not going to never necessarily be succumb to a mite infestation and, and crash out and die. They just have a better chance or a better tool set to try to deal with them. But they will not prevent or, or eradicate mites. Okay. Okay. That sounds good. So, yeah. I mean, but it gets, it's just a, it's a step in the right direction. But, yeah, triple lapse is still overseas. It's not anything that is here yet. Um, we're looking at it kind of like Australia is looking at the varroa mite. They don't have it. Everybody else but them has it. And, you know, they're learning and preparing because inevitably someday – it's probably going to find its way over there. And then once it does, they've got it. And that's how triple alapse is for everybody right now is it's still over. Um, this is not known for a fact. I'm probably going to misquote this. I'm going to say it's still over on the Asian continent somewhere. Okay. And it has not migrated yet to America or Australia or New Zealand or any of those places. But it is over there and it is a nasty little critter. And, you know, they're they're doing some research and stuff on it, um, trying to figure out how it works. And unfortunately, all they're coming up with are giant question marks like we barely understand and are just now learning some of the key fundamental roles of the Varroa mite. And now you've got this other mite that seems to have a completely different agenda and motive and none of it makes sense to us at the moment. So, yeah, we'll we'll have to see on that one. But that's a story for another day at another time from somebody who is far more qualified than you or I. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what? We've been so, talking for almost an hour. <laughs> no, we haven't. How much? Yeah, we have. Yeah, we have. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. The good old days. It's what we do best. We talk bees. Well, when we're... Yeah, when we're when we're fish like officially back in the studio, then we can go back to our regular where each episode is an hour plus or around an hour. Um, we we try to keep it short at the moment since how it's via remote broadcast telecommute over the phone, um, and then also you know out of respect for Shannon who is uh, stuck in the studio seven days a week every morning um, as the only producer standing <laughs> to go through and take care of all of us Nimrods that have all these different shows. So, um, but yeah, so we, uh, we'll go through, we'll wrap this one up and um, 
Everybody out there, uh, you guys have actually, you've been sending in lots of questions and stuff, and I've been doing my best to kind of go through and try to answer them and whatnot. Uh, but if there are any questions that you guys would like to hear answered on the show, please send us an email and put the subject uh, of the email as listener question, and we'll go through and we'll put that out. We'll we'll compile another listener question episode, and we'll get that out here in the next week or two, depending on how quickly they come in. But shoot us an email. You can send it to info at thehivejive.com. And again, just put the subject as listener question and go through and tell us kind of what, you know, what it is that you have your question on. And, and we'll go out there. We'll put it on the air and we'll do a, a Q&A for everybody on that. And uh, otherwise, you all be good, be safe, and we will talk to you next week. Yes, we will. And we might even be talking about me making uh, mead with Michael Jordan. Not with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not with. Nope. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Rachel, for uh, for adding uh, fodder to Ken there so he can have something else to dream about. <laughs> um, but anyhow, yeah. So, again, we're going to close it out. Y'all be good, be safe, and bye. Y'all be good, family. Y'all, y'all, y'all stay healthy and well. We'll see y'all on the other side. The show might be over for now, but the sting won't last long. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our podcast as we'll be swarming in with new episodes Mondays of each month. Until then, behave yourselves.